All right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome back to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. <sighs> First of all, happy birthday, What Had Happened. Yay! First birthday, anniversary, whatever you want to call it, New Year. Yay! Great day in the morning. <laughs> like it's, I literally took like a billion years to get this episode out, but you know what? Thank you guys for understanding. My health comes first. Um, did not have COVID, thank goodness, but I did have a gnarly upper respiratory infection. <sighs> and so it's been a little bit difficult for me to talk. So I wanted to make sure that I was as recuperated as possible before getting into recording this episode for you guys. So again, happy birthday, what had happened? It's our birthday because I honestly couldn't do this without you guys. Like a year ago when I opened up my laptop and set up my mixer, I did not anticipate the following, the love, the support that I receive from you guys every time I drop an episode. Oh, love you guys so much. So I want to thank you guys for coming back every time and want to thank you guys again for coming back for the latest episode per usual i want to thank you for sharing the word of, about the podcast and helping build the listenership i'd like to remind you that if you haven't already please join the what had happened facebook group there's instagram twitter that i never tweet on youtube channel the what had happened website you know and if you're feeling froggy drop me an email there are cases you'd like to hear discussed or you just want to hit me with a longtime listener, first time emailer, whatever it is you want to say, just keep it freaking clean, people. Um, all of those links can always be found below in the description box, per the usual. So now, <laughs> I'd like to say thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your shout out time. Thank you for the listeners in Anchorage, Alaska. How's everybody doing in Aberdeen, Yankton, and Sioux Falls, South Dakota? Welcome Scarborough, Sanford, and Freeport, Maine. Aloha, Kailua, Kona, Honolulu, Waikiki, and Kaneohe Bay, and oh, Kailua, Hawaii. Hi, Providence, and North Kingston, Kingstown, Rhode Island. Welcome back, Victoria, Queensland, New South, uh, South Wales, and Tasmania, Australia. Greetings, Yukon, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Quebec, Canada, Western Cape, and KwaZulu Natal, South Africa. Welcome. Hello, Manila, Philippines. Hola, Catalonia, Spain. Hola, San Juan, Ponce, y Aguadilla, Puerto Rico. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the like, shares, and subscribes. Ah. <sighs> Last episode, I discussed the, the disappearance of Marine Corps Captain Shirley Gibbs Russell, who vanished after meeting her estranged husband at the home they once shared together in base housing, Quantico. Today, I'll be telling you what had happened at the hands of the Warwick slasher, Craig Price. You heard of him? No? Let's go. Craig Chandler Price was born on October 11th, 1973 to John and Shirley Price. So John came from Mississippi, Shirley hailed from South Carolina, and then after she moved to the Boston area for school, she ended up in Rhode Island. All of that is great information to know, a little background. 
the Mr. and Mrs. got married in 1968 when then in that August their their oldest child Kimberly was born and then John was born next and then Craig completed the family. Okay, so the Prices were, are an African-American family who resided in Warwick, Rhode Island, which is a city in Kent County, Rhode Island. It's the third largest city in the state. It's approximately 12 miles away from downtown Providence. Notable, notably, actor James Woods attended Pilgrim High School in 1965. There are also like a nice list of professional athletes from Warwick. So from I did a, I did a quick look. So from 1968 to present, the population of this small affluent hamlet has maintained at about 82,000 residents. African-Americans making up shy of 1% of the population. Um, the prices were described as being well-rounded and all-American. They were, okay, they literally were giving off, like, Huxtable vibes, okay? Um, you know, little Craig loved to play football and baseball and you know so did his brother john kimberly was listed in the she was one of she was the friendliest she you know how they do the senior superlatives kimberly was the friendliest um of her female classmates in her class of graduates or whatever you know graduates so john senior and shirley worked together uh at Kmart, but they were working in the office side of things. So John was in management and Shirley was in, she was in administration and, you know, did clerical work. And together they combined brought in about $50,000 a year, which is a lot of money at that time for a family of five. And they lived very comfortably in their ranch home that, you know, they set up shop and started raising these amazing children. <sighs> All three of the children, especially the youngest Craig, were described as intelligent, kind, big-hearted. They would give give you anything and they would do anything for you, you know. But somewhere around the age of nine, Craig began to change. Dark thoughts began to take over his head. Thoughts of death. More so the deaths of other people. And this is about the same time that Craig began getting into trouble around the neighborhood. A few short years later, you know, by the age of 13, let me paint this picture. Craig weighed roughly 200 pounds. He was a bigger child uh, at 13. He had been in trouble for stalking, peeping, breaking and entering, robbery, and assault. Despite all of the things that Craig was doing, people who remembered him said that he was a cheerful child. Craig would soon join a local gang. I have so many fucking questions about this gang. But he would end up joining a local gang and began experimenting with marijuana and LSD. During this time, Craig had a substantial growth spurt. Like I said, he weighed like 200 pounds, you guys. He was a big boy at 13. I'm 165 pounds. And the thought of a child outweighing me scares the fucking shit out of me. Um, also, sidebar, his nickname for football was Iron Man. So let that picture be painted. This this young man was like 
a fucking mini freezer, a fucking deep freezer coming at you. Okay, use a tank. Oh. So there was a juxtaposition because, you know, he was like a big lumbering kid who was doing bad shit, but he was a good kid and he was sweet. So, yeah, I would have just said, Godspeed, young man. So, as I stated before, he had a history of breaking and entering the homes of his neighbors with the greatest of ease. So, he was also like nimbly pimbly. Okay, cat burglar, I see you. And, you know, what he would do is he would go in, he would actually just like stalk his neighbors. So, he would watch his neighbors, watch their comings and goings. And then, when they were not home, he would normally enter the home, pilfer whatever he wanted to steal, and then sneak out. <sighs> he would also develop a proclivity for watching women through their windows, observing their habits and movements throughout their homes. In the wee hours of July 28th, 1987, breaking and entering and peeping would prove deadly. The night That night, Craig roamed the neighborhood, creeping and sneaking in the shadows when he stopped at 60 Inez Avenue. The home, a rental, was just a few homes away from his own. The occupants of 60 Inez Avenue were 27-year-old divorcee Rebecca Spencer, her two children ages 4 and 8, and her brother. The lease on the home was nearly up, and Rebecca had been packing. On the 27th, the home was buzzing with activity. Rebecca's ex-husband came to the home early in the day and picked up the, ch the couple's children so that she could pack up the home uninterrupted. After the children departed with their father, one of Rebecca's friends came to help pack boxes. The two women worked until 6 p.m. when Rebecca made dinner for herself, her friend, and her brother. Rebecca's brother, Carl, worked nights and left at 8.30 for his shift. Shortly after Rebecca's brother departed, her friend's boyfriend arrived. The three packed up more of the items in the home. Satisfied that they had packed most of Rebecca's belongings, they left together to have ice cream and run a couple of errands. The three returned to Rebecca's home at 11 p.m. and the couple departed after midnight. Rebecca's uh, Rebecca closed the door behind her friends and stripped out of the clothes she had been wearing all day and switched into a pair of pajamas. Rebecca grabbed a blanket and curled up on the floor to watch TV in the living room. It wasn't long before Rebecca drifted to sleep. A few sh short hours into Rebecca's slumber on the floor, 13-year-old Craig stood quietly watching her sleep. He stood there for a few moments before he walked into the kitchen to grab a frying pan. Craig instead locked eyes with a 10-inch knife on the counter and grabbed it. Calmly and quietly, Craig walked back into the living room, standing over Rebecca for several minutes. After watching Rebecca sleep for a few minutes without provocation, the teen leaned over Rebecca and began to savagely stab her to death. Frenzied, Craig stabbed Rebecca 58 times, puncturing the lungs, liver, heart, face, and head. When Craig was done, he left the home as he entered it through the back door. He slipped over a couple of fences and into his home.
Hours later, Rebecca's body was discovered by her brother when he returned home from his work shift. Seeing his sister laying motionless in a pool of crimson, he dialed 911 and performed CPR until police arrived. When the police arrived, they secured the home and established a perimeter. The home that was buzzing with activity 24 hours before, generated by Rebecca and her friends, was replaced by, with crime scene tape and law enforcement. The neighborhood and town were in shock as word of the vicious slaying spread. While detectives worked hard to close the case, they found themselves hitting a brick wall. Subsequently, the case went cold and Craig went dormant for two years. In the next two years, Craig entered high school. As a student, Craig excelled, and as an athlete, he was a freshman on the varsity football team alongside his older brother, John. On September 1st, 1989, 15-year-old Craig was one month away from his 16th birthday. On the surface, the larger-than-life young man had everything going for him. That evening, he smoked LSD-laced marijuana, and the darkness that had been hibernating for two years came to life again. Also, by this time, he was about 235 pounds, y'all. So over the course of two years, he has bulked up more. He's also playing, like, football. Football! Any Wildcats fans out there? Anyways, so he was a big, he was a big child. A big child. Fuck. 235 pounds. Whew. Okay, so. On the surface, everything was good. But then all of a sudden, and every, notice every time he smokes LSD-laced marijuana, he would allow whatever voices were in his head to take over. If you're a Dexter fan, you know, the dark passenger or whatever. So, you know, that happened. Craig found himself standing in front of the home of Joan Heaton and her children. After standing in front of the Heaton's home for a while, Craig decided to allow the thoughts that consumed his head to get the better of him. When Craig entered the Heaton home, he made a noise that rose Joan from her sleep. Curious of the noise, Joan padded through her home. Seeing the strange, large teen startled Joan, and she began screaming. After the, afraid the neighbors would hear the commotion in the Heaton home, Craig quickly used his hulking weight to strangle Joan until her lifeless body crumpled to the floor. Unsure if Joan was unconscious or dead, Craig grabbed a kitchen knife and stabbed her 57 times quickly. When Joan screamed initially, though, she woke her sleeping 8- and 10-year-old daughters who decided to investigate. When the girls got to the landing of the stairs, Craig saw Joan's 10-year-old daughter, Jennifer, and he grabbed her. As Jennifer screamed for her 8-year-old sister, Melissa, to call the police for help, Craig stabbed the girl 62 times. Before Melissa could reach the kitchen phone, Craig swooped up the 8-year-old like a rag doll stabbing the young girl 37 times before crushing her skull with a kitchen stool. 
Craig stabbed Melissa so viciously that the tip of the kitchen knife was found embedded in her neck. In all of the violence, unlike the murder of Rebecca Spencer, the Heaton family fought back, and the rage Craig inflicted on them caused the knife to slip, and he cut himself. After snapping out of his frenzied state, Craig covered up the two children in Joan. While moving the bodies around, he left a bloody sock print. After gathering what evidence he had of his crime, Craig slipped into the night and went home. When Joan's mother, Marie, failed to hear from her daughter after a few days, she became concerned. The two were constantly in contact with, un with one another, and this goes back to Linda Sobek. Linda Sobek and her mom were super tight like that too if you recall you know a few episodes back and so you know mother's intuition when she didn't hear from her child she became concerned for her daughter and her grandchildren it was not like her to go four days without communication so marie and her sister mary lou decided to drive to joan's home and do a wellness check when the women arrived, they observed Joan's car in the driveway, but no answer as they knocked repeatedly on the front door, which was locked. Unsatisfied, they worked their way around to the back of the home, where they found that the back door was unlocked. As soon as the duo entered the home, they were hit with the smell of copper, you know, blood covering, and blood was covering the entire room. It was a bloodbath. As they went farther into the home, the bodies of Joan and the children were quickly discovered. The two women called 911 and quickly exited the house as they awaited the police. After taking in the brutality of the crime scene and similarities to the unsolved murder of Rebecca Spencer, police consulted with the FBI who felt that the town of Warwick was dealing with a serial killer who lived in close proximity to the Spencers and Heatons. The community was shocked and paralyzed with fear as they waited for either another gruesome murder or apprehension of the killer stalking the small town. Armed with the profile presented by the FBI, Warwick police began searching for their killer at large. On September 5th, 1989, two patrolmen happened upon Craig and a group of his friends hanging out at a local park. The two patrolmen were familiar with the lumbering youth in two parts. One, his run-ins with them committing crimes throughout town, and two, because Craig also participated in police-sponsored youth sports and activities. The two officers asked Craig innocently enough if he'd heard anything about the Heaton murders, just hoping that the teen may have heard some gossip in the streets because they knew that he was, you know, he was hanging out with people who were not necessarily the savoriest of people. And that's when they noticed that the boy's hand was wrapped in a bandage. So the police officers inquired Craig, you know, about his hand. They were like, hey, boy, what had happened? And that's when the 15-year-old brazenly told them the most obscure story ever. 
Craig told them that he had been drinking while walking and decided to punch in the windshield of a randomly, like a random parked car on X. I don't know the street name, and even if I did, I wouldn't even tell you it's bullshit. But he said that he was on a particular street. He got pissy drunk, and he said, you know what? I'm 235 pounds of sexy. I'm just going to obliterate this windshield. And he punched the windshield, breaking the glass, shattering it everywhere. After exchanging a few more words with Craig, the officers left the park and drove back to the police station. So everything about this story was sus as fuck. And these cops, they were not really buying the the entire story. I mean, like, it seemed super weird to them that this minor would admit to committing numerous crimes. He was probably out past curfew. He was intoxicated. He was walking whilst intoxicated. And he vandalized someone's property. Just giving you guys the tally of the crimes that this boy said he facilitated. You know. So they were suspicious of the story that Craig had told them. And the officers decided to go through the reports from the night of Craig's alleged incident. In an attempt to either corroborate his story or call all the bullshit that they felt they were smelling around them. After searching, the officers were unable to find evidence of any reported vandalized cars on the street in question or even within the vicinity of the area that Craig alleged. Because you know what? Craig said that he had been drinking, so maybe he forgot what street he was on. So they checked that entire night and the crime blotter, there were no reports of vandalism. You know, I... Uh, they, there weren't even any signs of vandalism, such as broken glass, on the streets. Because these police officers decided to do a quick little cruise through and see what had happened, if something had happened. Deducing that Craig had lied to them, the officers decided to search deeper within Craig's criminal record. They noted that the lion's share of the teen's offenses were a combination of breaking and entering and stalking. This alarmed the two patrolmen, but they didn't immediately tell their superiors their suspicions. The two questioned everything because if they were correct in their gut feelings, their killer began at the age of 13. You can't just go running out there and, you know, accusing 13-year-old kids of committing murder stop these police been coming back from 1986 and um, 13, 14, and 15 year olds can do that too. IKS. Before they could even present their hypothesis to their superiors and detectives, a friend of Craig's called the patrolman to tell them that Craig had been bragging about murdering Rebecca Spencer and getting away with it. Detectives now began to gather the requisite evidence to issue a search warrant on the Price home. In the early hours of September 17, 1989, Warwick police searched the Price home from top to bottom. It was Craig was said to have been so unbothered by the commotion around him, he slept through their search of his home. 
While the modest ranch home yielded none of the items listed within the search warrant, the shed in the backyard would be another story. Tucked inconspicuously behind a barrage of items stored in the shed, detectives located a plastic bag. Its contents, blood-soaked clothing, knives, gloves, a sock that matched the bloody sock print at the Heaton home, and other various odds and ends. Mrs. Price sobbed as she accompanied her son to the police station. While Mrs. Price was visibly distraught, and virtually inconsolable, her son Craig was described as being detached and non-pulsed by the, his arrest. We've heard this before again. Go back to episode one. If you don't know, you know now. <sighs> Knowing that they were interviewing a child who was also a sophisticated serial killer, because let's keep it 100, the shit was so random, and he managed to commit the murder the first time, kill one person, and then commit an act of family annihilation by killing Joan, Jennifer, and Melissa Heaton. Uh, if it hadn't been for himself cut, for his cut on his hand and that size 13 sock print, he would have gotten away with it. Also, he was a kid, so he ran his fucking mouth. But if the police hadn't stopped to inquire if, you know, he hadn't heard anything, he probably would have gotten away with it, and his friends probably would have just thought that the boy was just telling tall tales. Sidebar. So that's where I come from when I say he was sophisticated. Because he was a, he was a fucking kid. So to be a kid and to, to start killing in a serial fashion... That is kind of sophisticated. I mean, you gotta start somewhere. You would think it would be animals or things of that sort, but his histrionics do not present that he was that type of child. <coughs> Excuse me. So, the police wanted to get a confession, but decided against immediately asking about the murders. Instead, they asked the teenager why he was filled with so much rage all of the time. Craig told them that he was angry because of the racism that he had been forced to endure growing up in the all-white town of Warwick. Craig said that the rage inside of him grew deeper because of this and drove him to commit the murders. He recounted how one day, while his friends, while with his friends, a random white man verbally accosted him and called him a nigger. After yelling the slurs at Craig, the man attempted to run him and his friends off the road. That man's actions lit a fire deep within Craig because he was not only mad at the man, he felt shame for not standing up for himself and his friends in that moment. Craig would vow to exact his revenge against the man. Craig told the detectives how he watched the man's comings and goings for days following the incident. He didn't have to go far because the man lived two fucking doors down. The man was Rebecca's brother, Carl, who, you know, Carl would later tell police that he had never yelled at the youths, nor did he yell any racial epithets. After discussing in detail all of the rage and hatred harbored towards Carl, Craig gave detectives a full confession. Craig told detectives that he waited for his family to fall asleep. 
So, okay, by his family, he met his, his dad, he waited for his dad to leave to go to work. His sister, Kimberly, was spending the night at a friend's house, and his mom and his brother went to bed. He sat in his room, and he, you know, waited before he snuck out of the Price home. Craig said that he crept into his neighbor's yard where he jumped the fence into the Spencer yard. Craig was displeased when he was unable to see Carl's car. Craig said that he then went back home and smoked a combination of marijuana and LSD. After a while, he decided to return to the Spencer home. At this point, Craig said that with or without Carl being home, he had decided to break in and steal what he could. When he stood in front of the home, he observed that the television was on in the living room. Craig stood there watching Rebecca sleep, and in that moment, he decided he was going to enter the Spencer home and kill Rebecca. After confessing to the murder of Rebecca Spencer in 1987, he then went into his confession of in the Heaton murder, family murders. Craig detailed vividly every moment in the Heaton home. He told detectives that he strangled Joan after she discovered him in her kitchen. He graphically detailed stabbing her repeatedly, only to move on to Jennifer and Melissa. When he was finished confessing to the brutal slayings, the 15-year-old was charged with four counts of first-degree murder and two counts of burglary. In 1989, when Craig was arrested for the murders, similarly, similarly to the murder of Rita French, it was against the law to incarcerate the juvenile beyond their 21st birthday. Therefore, the serial killing youth was only sentenced to five to six years in a juvenile facility, and upon his release, his juvenile records would become sealed. In 1990, the people of Rhode Island would work tirelessly to enact changes within the state's juvenile justice system. To the people of Rhode Island, it was dumbfounding that Craig would be released so quickly after committing four heinous murders. Craig showed no remorse for the crimes he committed, and whilst incarcerated, refused psychological therapy and examinations needed to properly diagnose and treat any mental illness he may have had. In 1994, Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Pine traveled to Quantico, Virginia to attend FBI training courses. During this time, he learned that less than 1% of killers are frenzied in their attacks like Craig Price. He learned that with killers such as Craig, there wasn't a practical method of treatment to ensure that the killer would no longer be a threat to society and wouldn't commit further crimes. After attending these courses, Assistant Attorney General Pine returned to Rhode Island where he began petitioning the courts to order Craig to undergo psychological testing. Again, Craig refused. This refusal allowed Assistant Attorney General Pine to file contempt of court charges against Craig. When Craig appeared for the contempt of court charges, he verbally threatened to kill members of the court. Craig's vows to kill again 
um, ensured that he was sentenced to an additional 15 years with eight years suspended. In 1996, Craig received an additional year for biting the finger of an officer. The following year, Craig received an additional 25 years with 15 suspended for, again, failing to comply with a court-ordered psychological evaluation. In 1999 and 2001, Craig received four additional years after he verbally and physically attacked another officer. In 2017, Craig received an additional 25 years for attacking a fellow inmate with a shank. Craig had been incarcerated in a Florida, he has been incarcerated in a Florida State Correctional Facility since 2004. After being denied parole in March 2009, Craig is due for release this year. So what had happened is this. Good people can birth bad people. We've learned that serial killers start somewhere. And while Craig was a child... He was going into becoming a, he was a young adult, fuck it. He was a kid slash young adult, and had he not been caught for the murder of the Heaton family, it is my firm belief that he would have continued to wreak havoc amongst the community that he lived in. No matter how long the darkness lied dormant, I feel that he had a bloodlust. He'd gotten a taste for it when he murdered Rebecca Spencer. And it was an insatiable appetite. Now I can go back, okay, we can go back and we can go into the whole thing where he says that the root of his hatred stemmed from racism. I myself was raised in an all-white town. The back of our school's newsletters every month had a pie chart that broke down the demographics of the student body. I was 0.096% of the student body. I will never forget the first time I was called a nigger. I was in fifth grade, and the boy was in third grade. I cried like a little baby for days. Because while I didn't necessarily understand what the word meant, I knew that it was a derogatory term and that it was a word used against people of color like myself. I would like to say that that was the first and only time. However, we live in a country where people teach hate and hate breeds hate. And subsequently enough, people's superiority likes to rear its ugly head from time to time. Unlike Craig, 
I decided that I wasn't going to hate everyone. In fact, I don't even hate the people necessarily who lauded all of the epithets at me, my peers of, you know, who are a part of the LGBTQ plus community, my classmates who are who my peers who are Asian or of Hispanic and Latino descent, Middle Eastern descent, my minorities, my people. I never hated the people that committed those offenses. Instead, I decided to get on my soapbox and talk until my head fell off to teach people that words have power and what you say can get you fucking got. I'm not going to hurt you, but you could fuck around and find out what will happen if you say the wrong word to the wrong person. Words have power. Words have gravity. And I've been like that my whole life. I've always been an advocate for myself and for other people. That's just me. Look at us now. We're podcasting, giving lesser known true crime stories out there for, you know, voices for the victims. So here we are. You know, um, so I can understand growing up in a community where you don't look like anybody else. The standards of beauty and everything else are based on the people around you. And when you only see the people in your home and maybe a couple of peers around town that look like you, you can lose a sense of your you know, your own self-worth and identity. I can understand. It's crushing. It's crushing. But unlike him, I have, you know, a different set of, you know, I was reared different. I mean, we weren't reared differently, to be perfectly honest with you. We both had, we both grew up in amazing homes with parents who loved us, who wanted nothing but the best for us. He just had a lot of darkness within him that he allowed to fester. He was a frenzied killer. I absolutely believe that he would continue to murder. After seeing how much rage was put into all of the attacks and murders, I don't doubt that he would have continued really causing a frenzied harm you know to people he he had zero he had no control and then he fought against getting his noggin analyzed which to me shows again a lack of give a fuck because he knows that there's something dark within him. He doesn't want to give that up and let it go. That's what that tells me. And I wonder at some point if he didn't just lash out all of these instances where he was committing acts of violence amongst his fellow inmates and correctional officers and louding out these threats towards, you know, members of the court. I wonder if... Some of that was just him trying to maintain his reputation. And if he even meant it, or 
You know, I mean, I've just got a lot of questions now at this point. I could I could wax poetic and hypothesize until the cows come home on this one. But I honestly feel like in this instance, this is just the case of he was a bad egg. Fuck it. I'll say it. He was a bad egg. His parents were amazing. His siblings are great. You know, sometimes you just have one that isn't going to go with the fucking flow. And this one really went off the beaten path to, you know, do some really horrible, horrific shit. That was always going to follow the family. It's The stigma is always going to be there. It's always going to follow him. It's this big, looming, dark cloud that you just cannot escape because he lacked remorse. No contrition. My dude, what the fuck? Like, come on, people. So, I mean, like, I ultimately would love to hear that he was able to get help and that he could get out of the mentality that he was in. But given the statistics that frenzied killers are just predisposed to having that recklessness wired within them, that there's there's a lack of self-restraint, a lack of self-control, you know, and they most likely are the ones that are going to re-offend. It scares the shit out of me, you guys. It's, it's, it's bothersome. I wish that he would have been reformed. Uh, But, you know, I understand bucking back because every time you want to get out, they keep stacking all of these years on you. But stop doing the fuck shit that's going to get the years stacked against you. Unless you want those years stacked against you because you know that you are going to become... You know, uh, you're going to come back. You know that you have no control, so you continue to fuck up so that you can come back. So that is Shawshank Redemption. Mm. You know, um, it happens. I would love to hear that this man was able to work through all of his dark shit. But, you know, only time will tell. (sighs) what a waste of youth, what a waste of life, what a waste of a future, you know, what a waste of families, Rebecca Spencer's children went with their dad under the, with the thoughts of seeing their mommy again, and she was taken from them. Joan Heaton and her two daughters gone. No sweet 16s. No graduations. No college. Weddings. Celebratory 
grandchildren celebrations, no sipping seas, watching your children grow, travel the world, become pillars of their own communities, become the best that they were going to become. Watching all of the dreams and aspirations come to fruition, all of that was obliterated at the hands of a child. So, guys, that's that's it. I got nothing else. Like, I'm actually getting kind of sad thinking about it, so... I am going to bid you all adieu again. Thank you so much. So, 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 so much for coming back and listening, helping keep this thing going for the past year. Also, quick question, guys. If you know of anybody that wants to partner with the What, with the, uh, what Had Happened family, get some ads out there for you know their online-based businesses, coffee, tea, deodorant, who cares? Send me an email. Drop me a message. Anyways, you guys, I hope you guys have a great weekend. I hope you enjoyed this episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Kimberly, bringing you the lesser known true crime stories. And now I'm bringing you that beautiful outro music. Have a great weekend, guys. Hey.